the price tags are just made up. Somebody writes a price on your job the day before you walk in to talk about it. And whether you negotiate or not is a choice you get to make. This is the Happen to Your Career podcast with Scott Anthony Barlow. We help you stop doing work that doesn't fit you, figure out what does, and make it happen. We help you define the work that's unapologetically you, and then go get it. If you're ready to make a change, keep listening. Here's Scott. Here's Scott. Here's Scott. Let's time travel into the future for just a moment. It's a few months down the road. You've been working on a career change, finding the right organization, determining what matters most to you, all the things. You've been doing that for months now, and your commitment has paid off. You've just received an offer from the organization that you want to work with very most. It's pretty much a wonderful fit all the way around. Okay, so you finish popping some champagne, you do some happy dancing. It's now time to negotiate. You might be thinking, what? Negotiate and risk losing this amazing offer? And that's so commonly the response. Or even if you're willing to negotiate, so many people think that it is a struggle and it is something that they don't want to do and it's undesirable. I want you to think about it like this. Receiving that offer means out of every single person that was considered for a position, they want you. Now the ball's in your court. So how do you propel yourself for that conversation? How do you make this amazing offer actually everything, including on the finance side, including on the offer side, including the other things that can be structured into an offer? How do you make it all that you thought it could be into your ideal? There are a lot of things you want to bring into the discussion that from your point of view might help you achieve your goals, which is get a certain amount of money with a certain set of benefits by a certain time. And that has to be done beforehand. I can't emphasize that enough. You walk in with no goals, you're going to get what they offer because you don't know what you want. That's Richard Shell. Richard is a highly experienced lawyer, author, and is currently a professor at Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania, where he teaches MBA-level classes and workshops on negotiation and persuasion. Because of his expertise in these areas, he was even sought out by the Crisis Negotiation Unit of the FBI and served as a consultant for them. Here's the thing. You're going to get to hear how Richard's background in education helps him provide wonderful examples on how to approach negotiations. In particular, I want you to pay attention to what we talk about in our conversation for job offer negotiations. And he does a fantastic job by providing exact language that you can use during your next salary or role negotiation. I um, am not a natural born negotiator. It was actually something that I felt anxiety about. And at a given point, I went to law school and went to be a lawyer. And when you're a lawyer, there's, it's not an option. You're doing a lot of negotiations. You have to do it all the time. I felt very uncertain about it. I did my best. I looked for role models. But it became a topic that I went, you know what? I bet there's a lot more to know about this than I'm bringing to it. And so when I got the opportunity to switch careers into being a professor at the Wharton School, one of the beauties of being a professor is you get to study what you want to know more about. And I made negotiation my topic. And so I just went to school on it. And the more I learned, the, the better I got. 
And the, the better I got, the more confident I got. And then the more confident I got, the better I got. And eventually I started a, an executive program on negotiation. And the book, Bargaining for Advantage, actually emerged from the executive program. Because as you're teaching senior executives, you learn tremendous amounts about all these different contexts that they're negotiating, including people from Africa coming to the program who have been hostages and how they negotiate their way out, out of it, or uh, people who are buying and selling businesses and how they do that, and people who are heads of private equity firms, and just all these different contexts. So as that began to happen, then I just got loaded with examples, stories, context, and then I could write the book from a business standpoint and really feel like I was talking about something that I knew about, not because I'd done all those things, but because I'd been working with people who did, who did them all the time for money and it's their life's work. One of the points that I believe it was in your book someplace that you had mentioned is that negotiation often is happening around us even though we may not realize it <laughs> and we find ourselves in these situations where we're negotiating but may not have realized how or when or where or even for what necessarily. And the story that I recall was something along the lines of, I want to say, babysitting a hamster or something along those lines. Oh, 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 <laughs> Fill oh, me oh, in. Sure. Tell me, tell me yeah, more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. I think at a, uh, at a sort of premise level, you can't negotiate unless you know you're doing it. All right. So, I mean, you can't do it skillfully. So yeah. the first step is awareness. And it's often the case that they stick up on you. So I was living near the university with my family, uh, two sons, and the phone rang one evening as we were eating dinner. And it was a neighbor's daughter whose name was Emily. And, you know, her father was another professor. You know, we knew the family really well. And uh, she was in middle school and she said, you know, she was raising money for her little middle school softball team to go on some trip during spring vacation. And would I buy a basket of fruit that, you know, they were all selling? And basically there was a $10 and a $15 and a $20 option for the fruit. And so I listened to it for a little while and I kind of went, well, okay, Emily, you know, we want to help you. Uh, so we'll take the $10 basket. Uh, and just then my older son says, is that Emily? And I said, yeah. He said, ask her about the guinea pig. And I went, what guinea pig? And we had a <laughs> guinea pig, but our younger son had just gotten this guinea pig. We were going off for the holidays. We needed someone to take care of the guinea pig. So I said to Emily, Emily, are you guys going to be around this weekend? She said, yeah. And I said, would you mind taking care of Ned's guinea pig? And she said, oh, we'd love to do that. But in that case, could you take the $20 package? Boom. So she was negotiating. I wasn't. And what am I going to say at that point? I mean, I can't say, no, Emily, I'm going to make you take care of the guinea pig. But it was, it was a, good, a good example of, of even a child. In fact, children almost always realize that there's some give and take going on. And they're alert that when someone asks for something, they get a chance to ask for something back. And so I got, I got trapped. So I have kids. My oldest right now is 12. She's going to turn 13. And I see a lot of evidence that they are very painfully aware that there is always that give and take and trade-offs and all kinds of situations as it relates to negotiation. 
It also makes me curious, at what point do we fall into naivety somewhere along the way where we're painfully aware of that initially, like with our parents, but then later on, we're like, oh, oh, I guess that's all happening. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, where do we lose it? I think people, I think kids actually understand the fun part of it. And they also understand that everything, they're, they're in a relatively weak position because everything they get comes from their parents. So they're like totally dependent. Now, when you're totally dependent on someone, do you study them? Yes, you do. Oh, yeah. You study them like a, like a, like a holy book. So if they want to get a little more of whatever it is that's on their list of things that they want, they've studied you. They've studied your spouse. They know the whole social story there. And so they have to negotiate because it's the only way they can, you know, get more of what it is they want. They can, of course, ask, and different families have different cultures, but they don't always get by just asking, so then they have to be a little more clever. Now, the adult world is full of rules. It's full of standard operating procedures. It's full of price tags. It's full of all these things, especially in our culture. Now, if you go to, you know, Ghana and, you know, go shopping, it's a different experience because they're haggling over everything. But if you go to the supermarket, you know, you don't go up to the guy at the meat counter and say, well, I see you're offering filet mignon for $30 a pound. What do you say to 20? Good luck to you. I mean, it, it, the guy doesn't have the authority unless they own their own shop to discount what's sitting there with a price tag on it. So we're acculturated to forget. We, we live in a price world, not a haggling world. And so there's a lot of support for forgetting in our culture. And, you know, then when you relearn it, you take a, a job negotiation, for example. Mm-hmm. You go, you know, into uh, an employment negotiation and you're used to a price tag. And so you're thinking, well, they're offering X. So that is like the price tag. So, I, you know, I'm going to say yes, or I might lose the job, or I might look like I'm greedy or, or, or crazy or something. And actually... At that point, what's going on is you're not in a market where there's a price tag. The price tags are just made up. Somebody writes a price on your job the day before you walk in to talk about it. And whether you negotiate or not is a choice you get to make. But when people negotiate it, you don't look crazy. You don't look unreasonable. You don't look like you're coming from another planet. What you look like is someone who's taking initiative, someone who's got some skills, someone who can do it well and um, have these awkward conversations in a way that make other people comfortable, which is a really important skill to have. So in some ways, the negotiation process, once you put it into a place where there is no market price, that's the signal. If there's no market price, they just uh, somebody puts a number on something, then it's going to be negotiated if you want to. And most jobs are like that. That's really interesting. There are about seven different things I'd love to dig into. However, the most important of those first are, you mentioned making people feel comfortable through these awkward conversations and that being a really valuable skill. I don't think I've quite heard it explained that particular way. So one, tell me more about what you mean by that and how can people begin to get very good at that or practice that? Yeah, well, it depends. Uh, on, well, <laughs> yeah. 
you know, how do you make, a, let's say you're in sales, how do you make sure. your customer feel comfortable? Well, it depends on who the customer is. So when you're negotiating, a lot depends on who your counterpart is and what their expectations are. And then also who you are. And part of the, uh, what you get when you buy bargaining for advantage is a personality assessment, which gives you a chance to benchmark your own sort of impulses and emotions and learn, well, you know, I'm a pretty cooperative person. And so I'm going to need to make some adjustments to be more assertive, or I'm a very assertive person. And in order to, you know, work, make this work, I'm going to have to dial it down a little bit and listen a little more and be more sort of open to questioning people. So, so the way you make someone comfortable is going to depend on the emotional intelligence that you have about yourself and the other person with the surrounding circumstances, building set of expectations. You've got yeah. a lot of things to talk about. And the last thing you want is to make yourself one of the issues. Explain that for me. Tell me more about what you mean when you say... When you make yourself an issue, it means that people start going, this person's trouble. They have a personality quirk. They don't listen. They overtalk me. There's stuff that, you know, you're, in some ways you're sort of still interviewing. And so if you make yourself an issue, people start thinking, you know what? This may not be a good fit. And now you're now you're adding risk where there wasn't any. So I think it's important to just, again, it's social appropriateness. Now, I'll give you a quick story. So I had a student, a student of mine, who was going to work for a hedge fund. And they got this offer, and they started to negotiate it. And they became so aggressive in the negotiation that they started offending the person they were negotiating with. Now, it's a hedge fund, so they want you to be aggressive, but they also need you to be able to client interface. And the person who was making the offer was obviously the person in the power seat in this discussion. And it became obvious that my student, who had a very aggressive personality and had trouble containing himself sometimes, didn't really have the social intelligence to dial himself down to make the appropriate adjustments to who actually owned the room. And they withdrew the offer. And he came to me and went, what did I do? What did I do? I said, well, you, you weren't paying attention to the social situation you were in and you overdid it. So you need to learn how to dial it down when you don't have leverage. When you've got leverage, you know, maybe there's a chance for you to behave this way, but even then it's not a great idea. Sometimes when you're up against someone like you, it'll be a shouting match and you'll both enjoy it. But this other person was not like you. And so you blew it. So there's a boundary condition of, of behavior that we expect in certain social conditions. And when you, when, you go, when you go outside that boundary, other people become uncomfortable. They don't know where you're coming from. They don't know where you're going to go next. They wonder what's happening. So your goal as a negotiator is to stay inside the boundary conditions that is going to allow for open communication, but not make any concessions on your goals. So there are two things going on. One is the social, how do we deal with the other person? The other is your cognitive, where are you going? What's your goal? 
And then, you know, how close can you get to it? Tell me about how that can look in the real world, because I think that what you said there is so important about not going outside of the perceived, you know, social, um, I forget the word you used, but the perceived social boundaries. Yeah. Yeah. However, you know, I think that that makes sense on its own. What could that look like? Let's use the, you mentioned job offer negotiation earlier. Let's use that as a thread here. What would that look like in that situation? Let's, well, I'll I'll give you a situation right now. So we're experiencing this right now. We have someone who we're helping who just now got an offer just a, just a few days ago. She is about to go and have a conversation with them about that offer. What could that look like in that, in that sure. situation? Absolutely. So, you know, <laughs> again, I hate to do this to you, but if she's got an offer at a hedge fund, then that's going to be one set of assumptions about what they'll expect. Because if you're going to work for a hedge fund, they want you to be aggressive. And if you come in and just softball the negotiation, they're going to think, do we really want to hire this person? Um, on the other hand, if she's uh, got an offer at um, hospital, and, um, you know, it's all about patient care and uh, nursing and stuff like that, then they're not going to want someone who's aggressive. They're going to want someone who shows a lot of social intelligence. Both people can go in with a goal, you know, whatever the goal is. And I think you set your goals in a salary negotiation by virtue of what the market tells you, the span of reasonable, fair compensation is, at this kind of place, in that part of the country, for this kind of position. So you need to do some research. It's just like if you're buying a car, you know, well, the, the MSRP price for the Honda, you know, is X. Uh, and with these many bells and whistles, it goes up a little bit. So that's where the offer is. The offer is based on their perception of what the standards will support. You come in and you have a respectful conversation maybe more persistent or less, depending on, you know, whether you're in the hospital or at the hedge fund, and start talking about what's fair. You know, so obviously, we need to talk about the salary. I'm very excited about the offer that you've given. I can't tell you how close this is to something that I could see myself doing and really being helpful uh, to you with the experience I bring. And I think we have a shared interest in having a package that works in terms of it being fair for what people get when they do this kind of work in Memphis. Uh, So maybe you could tell me a little bit more about why you perceive this package that you've offered as a fair offer. And then let me see if I can think about that and come back to you and respond with some perceptions of mine on how we might improve it. I love that. First of all, thank you for giving specific language. That is so, so helpful and makes it real world and people can start to understand how they can embed it into their own reality too. So thank you for that. And I heard you be able to ask instead of just responding in that situation and saying, hey, you know, we're off and here's what I'd like instead. Instead, I heard you use the language to ask, you know, tell me why you feel this is fair from your perspective. Yeah. I wouldn't, I I wouldn't even use the word tell. What Uh, what word did you use? Explain. Ah, I like it. Tell me the difference in your mind between those two words. Because tell is a kind of challenge to, you know, like justify yourself. 
And explain offers the opportunity to give a reason and to get inside their head and see how they came to that conclusion. And there's a trail of breadcrumbs of logic that led them to this place. And you're just trying to get in and follow the breadcrumbs back to where it started and do it in a way that you're sharing information. It's like you're going to pool this information about fairness and you've got some and they've got some. Let's see if we can pool it. And then maybe, maybe the salary number looks fair after they discuss it and you, you know, kind of think about it. You go, uh, okay, I really see where you're coming from with that. So the package interests me as much as the salary. So I'd like to uh, sort of hold that for a second. Uh, and then let's talk about the insurance, the vacation, the bonus possibilities, the how often will I get reviewed? So if my performance is excellent, can I get reviewed for a salary raise a little sooner than maybe you might have otherwise uh, thought about? There are a lot of things you want to bring into the discussion that from your point of view might help you achieve your goals, which is get a certain amount of money with a certain set of benefits by a certain time. And that has to be done beforehand. I can't emphasize that enough. You walk in with no goals, you're going to get what they offer because you don't know what you want. And people who don't know what they want are, you know, pretty easy to deal with because they can be persuaded to want what they're being given. (laughs) (laughs) So let's talk, I think that brings up such a great point here with establishing your goals, what you want out of the negotiate, what you want out of the interaction. So tell me more about what advice would you give to someone who's in that situation? Let's just keep using this job offer, like this real world job offer situation that we have going on right now with one of our clients. Can we give this person a name? It had to be a real name, but just a name. We're going to call her, we're going to call her Sarah. How about to protect the innocent and everything else? So Sarah. Yeah. All right. So Sarah's, Sarah's got a job negotiation. She's got an offer, which means they they have not just said, we want to hire you, but they've said, we want to hire you. And here's the deal. Yep. That's where she's at right this very second. So that's, so that's perfect. That happens to me in my life all the time because I teach in an MBA program and students get offers and they come up to my office and they say, okay, Professor Tell, what do I do now? You know? So you get out a piece of paper and you write down the world as you would like it to be working for this group. Uh, Maybe you have some work-life balance issues that you would like to take care of. Maybe you've got some uh, planned vacation that you already had in the books that your family's eager to take and you've already got a down payment on the vacation place, uh, whatever it is. So make a list of all the things that would make you a really happy camper. And then think, okay, do I need more information on some of these to help with the standards? Now, standards are a really important concept in negotiation. Standards are the justifications we offer that what we're asking for is fair and reasonable. And that means that you've got some benchmark, you have a friend who has a job like this, and they're getting this in their job. Your last job actually offered a better version of this than this one is. And so you have a, you have a version of reality that you can talk about that is just not quite in sync with the one that you're seeing on this piece of paper. So now you have your standards, and you have your wish list. And then you go in and you start talking about the items and where you'd like to go with it and why uh, you're grateful so that you keep the lines of communication open and you have a a direction you're headed. Uh, Now, it doesn't mean you're going to get it all. But another thing that I would advise in this kind of situation for Sarah 
is that she used at least one meeting just for information. Don't consider uh, the first discussion over an offer letter as we've got to close it today. Unless there's urgency on their side, or this always it depends. But if there's a chance, say, you know, I'd like to, I, I, I got this letter. I'd love to talk to you a little bit more about it so I can understand it and ask a few questions and just kind of fill out the parts of my brain that don't have the information that you have because you you do this all the time. This is, I only get to do this once. Uh, so then use that to upload, you know, what's, why is it fair? Are there options here? Are there, you know, are they flexible there? Or, you know, what's going on? And then say, thank you. I'd love to think about it. I'd love to get back to you. What's, a, what's the deadline we have to meet here? I want to work with you on that. So then they, they, you get some time. Then you run back and then you start doing things like calling Scott and saying, Scott, this is what they said. What do you think? And getting perspective and consulting and then setting a set of priorities so that, you know, well, this is the most important thing. So let's make sure we secure that. And then you come back with a response where you get to say, well, I thought about it a lot. I think it's great. There are a few areas I'd like to tweak to if you're open to dis- discussing. Uh, and so here's what I'm thinking at the moment. And then you get your turn. And they get to say, are you crazy? No, never. We've never done that for anybody. So just asking, you know, just checking, you know. Uh, and then, you know, depending on how it goes, you might even go to a third meeting. Uh, so you might exchange a proposal then on email just to summarize where you think things are. And consulting in between sessions, really important. You don't want to do this alone. We, we have a saying at the Wharton Negotiating Workshop, never prepare alone. Why is that? Because you're in a bubble. Uh, you don't even know what you're not asking for. And your own fears or anxieties, people negotiate with themselves a lot more than they negotiate with other people. And uh, if you're talking to somebody else and you say, well, I would never ask for that, somebody else will say, why not? Well, it just seems unreasonable. Well, it doesn't seem unreasonable to me. I mean, it's not what you're asked for, it's how you ask for it. Oh, okay. All right, Bill, before I abandon that, maybe I'll keep that on the list. But if you didn't have someone to talk to, you'd talk yourself out of it in a second. Or the reverse may be happening. You may have something on the list, and this person knows the industry, and, and they know that if you go in and ask for that, they'll usher you out the door. You know, that is certifiably insane. It shows you don't know anything about the job if you ask for that. And so you'll lose credibility if you put that on the table when you don't need to. So your, your, your helper can, you know, give you a little more information that maybe that's something you ought to just abandon until you've been there five years or whatever it is. Uh, so other people's perspectives, really, really, really important. You said a couple of things there that I think are particularly powerful. One, you were talking about your own fears and you mentioned the, <laughs> why don't you want to do that? Well, it sounds unreasonable. Well, it doesn't sound unreasonable to me. I can't tell you the number of times, like into the probably well over a thousand times that I have been involved in that conversation. So that is that is very real to prove yeah. your point that, you know, never prepare alone, your perspective is going to be missing some pieces in one way or another. So I really appreciate you making that point. One other thing I wanted to ask you about too, you mentioned deadlines earlier and just as a part of the conversation asking about deadlines. I have found 
and I'm curious if you've seen this too in other places, but when we get to deadlines, especially for things like job offers, there is some crazy fears that have a tendency to surface as it relates to deadlines. Like I feel like I cannot ask for seven days or I feel like if I go more than giving them 24 hours to respond, like it might poof disappear as an, as an option. So question number one is, have you seen that same thing as it relates to job offers or other places in referring to those fears popping up around deadlines that it might disappear? And then two, how do you, how do you, what advice do you give? I guess I would say to help with that. Yeah. Well, a deadline is just a way of making something scarce. So you've got an opportunity. As soon as you put a deadline on it, it becomes scarcer because it could go away. And that's the reason you put a deadline on it. And every time something becomes scarcer, it becomes more valuable. That's basically the law of supply and demand. So people put deadlines on things for a variety of reasons. Now, you know, it, it may have the effect of creating some urgency on the other side, but they may put the deadline on because they have another person that's going to get the job if you turn it down and the other person's going to go poof. And, uh, and so they have to get an answer from you because otherwise they lose plan B. And so I've, I've done this on the other side. I'm the chair of a department at Wharton. I hire people and we have plan B and C sometimes uh, and we need to manage it with deadlines. So there's nothing necessarily bad or aggressive about having one. I think it helps if you ask why the deadline's important. And that way, if there really isn't any reason, you probably have a different kind of deadline than if they say, well, we, we need it because there's a regulatory filing coming up at the end of the month and we have to have our headcount settled. But that being said, if the deadline becomes an issue, uh, that is, it's inconvenient. You can't get the information you need by the deadline. Your person you're consulting with is in, you know, Timbuktu and can't be reached on the internet until next week. Then I think you go in and you say, can we talk about the deadline? Because here's why I'm having a problem meeting it. But if you, if it's totally fixed, I'll try to cope. But, but if it's possible to get an extra day or two or a week or whatever it is, then I'd really appreciate it. You know, as, as I said earlier, you do this all the time, but this negotiation for me is huge in my life. And I'd like to be able to take the time it takes to make sure I get it right. But I want to work with you. So, you know, is there a chance we could add some time to it? So you, you negotiate it if, if you need to. Otherwise, don't worry about it. And even, even make it a concession you've made. So I got the deadline. I've been working with you on that. Now, can you work with me on, you know, the start date? And so now you're doing the guinea pig thing. You know, uh, you, know, you uh, they asked for something, you get to ask for something. You know? So they had a deadline, so you get to ask for a late start date. But the important thing is almost every deadline is set as a result of a negotiation by somebody. And anything that's been created by a negotiation can be renegotiated. Richard, I have probably more than enough questions to keep us going for months. However, I just want to say thank you. First of all, this has been amazing. I really appreciate both the stories and making this very palatable, making giving exact language that people can use and also differentiate where people need to consider that it depends. <laughs> thank you for 
addressing both sides. That has been very, very helpful. I wanted to do two things. One, we mentioned the bargaining styles assessment. Where can people go and take advantage of that? Well, it's an appendix in the book. So, you know, the book is widely available. It's in 17 languages. So it's not hard to find, Bargaining for Advantage. And if you get the book, then it's in the Kindle, it's in the paperback, then it's Appendix A. I have an essay about everything we talked about today. And the book itself is threaded with that. So it's sort of a chapter will say, if you're an accommodating person, this might be the best move at this moment. If you're a competitive person, something else might be the best move. So it has a, a, a kind of a, a theme through the book that your personality is an important thread. First of all, let's say let's, the title of the book is Bargaining for Advantage, Negotiation Strategies for Reasonable People, which I personally loved as a title. And at the same time, I found it very helpful. Almost it made the book more interactive. That's probably the best way that I could describe it, which then I believe for me personally made it feel much more useful and therefore actually be much more useful as well. So really nice job with that. Get the book so that you can, so that you can get the access to the assessment as well, because they work very wonderfully hand in hand. And is there any place else that people should go or could go if they're interested in learning more about you, your story, or, or the book itself? Sure. Uh, well, grichardshell.com is my personal website. So I've written uh, four books, not just this one. And so that website has information about some of the other books. And then, you know, I actually think that, the, I mean, we offer executive programs at Wharton and people come for a week and study the subject with us. And it's the best possible learning environment for someone whose company's willing to sponsor them, but it's pretty expensive. So it's a luxury item. Otherwise, I would just say, take every advantage you can to make negotiation one of your things. It's just like playing the flute. If you practice, you'll get better. And learning about it by reading books, uh, by going and listening to podcasts that uh, interview people and uh, discuss it, uh, seeing how important it is in diplomacy or in, in business or in real estate or all the different ways that it comes up, follow it. And then the final thing that I enjoy the most is look for it in movies. Mm. Uh, the office is nothing but a wonderful <laughs> encyclopedia of negotiations that illuminate how people behave and how it works in a really good humored way. But it's, you know, it's, it's really fun once you start getting your arms around it to see it like that in films and television uh, and understand it. And you kind of go, oh, I get that. I understand it now. It uh, opens up part of the world that you might not have understood before. Well, I really very much appreciate both the conversation and, and the time. So thank you. Oh, Scott, my pleasure. I appreciate your having me aboard here. Many of the stories that you've heard on the podcast are from listeners that have decided that they wanted to take action and taken the first step of having a conversation with our team to try and figure out how we can help. And if you want to implement what you have heard and you want to completely change your life and your career, then let's figure out how we can help. So here's what I would suggest. Just open your phone right now and open your email app. And I'm going to give you my personal email address. 
scott at happentoyourcareer.com. Just email me and put conversation in the subject line. And then when you do that, I'll introduce you to the right person on our team and you can have a conversation with us. We'll try and understand your goals and what you want to accomplish in your career, no matter where you're at. And we can figure out the very best way that we can help you and your situation. So open it up right now and send me an email with conversation in the subject line. Scott at happenedyourcareer.com. Hey, I hope you loved this episode. Thanks so much for listening. And if this has been helpful, then please share this podcast with your friends, with your family, with your coworkers that badly need it. Here's a sneak peek into what we have coming up in store for you next week. What advice would the wise 95-year-old you, looking at death, who knew what mattered and what didn't and what was important and what was not important? What advice would that old person have for the you that's listening to me right now? How many versions of you are there? Nope, I'm, I'm not talking about alternate universes or anything crazy like that. Here's what I mean. Do you think you're the same person you were 10 years ago? How about five years ago? I'm going to say probably not. Yet so often when I talk to people about making a career change, they feel stuck on a career path that 18-year-old or 20-year-old them selected and said, hey, this is what I want to do. And ultimately, they're scared to make a change because they believe they'll regret leaving their career comfort zone. All that and plenty more next week right here on Happen to Your Career. Make sure that you don't miss it. And if you haven't already, click subscribe on your podcast player so that you can download this podcast in your sleep and you get it automatically. Even the bonus episodes every single week, sometimes multiple times a week. Until next week, adios. I'm out.